0: The years have all passed, we've reached modern times. The Nazis have come with their Nazi war crimes. Yes, the power was there, the power was found. Six million people have heard that same sound, that old knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come. To take Hello, and more, welcome to more. the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be looking at the second half of Mary McCarthy's debut novel, The Company She Keeps. Um, this novel, I, I love. I, I love pretty much everything about this novel. Um, I gushed over it in the previous episode where I look at the first four st- chapters, really first four short stories that they're, these are connected short stories. Although I talk about their connection in the last episode, they're you know, If you were to read these separately, you might not see the connection there. There is a common character throughout these, but these different episodes in our life are pretty disjointed. They're pretty separate. I think that's part of the point of the novel, uh, actually, is, is just how kind of disconnected our life may be and how kind of liquid it can be. Um, but they're great stories. And if you do read them as standalone stories, they're all really wonderful. The first one um, that I talked about in the last episode is called Cruel and Barbarous Treatment, which is about... Uh, our main character, Meg, Margaret, Margaret Sargent, and her, the affair she has with, with a younger man, and then how this leads to her divorce, and how the relationship with that young man seems to break down. The second uh, scene is really about kind of the way modern capitalism works in a way. It's called Rogue's Gallery, and it's about uh, this again, Meg taking a job with a, like an antique collector, an art dealer who's basically running a constant scam. It's about her, how she kind of learns how the scam works and and mostly focuses on this guy running this gallery and and the shenanigans he's running um, and eventually how his business falls apart. And it's a really fascinating look at just the, the dubiousness of, of, of business, uh, false fronts. That's a common theme in, in these stories. And that's a great story as well. The third is maybe the best in this entire novel called the man in the brooks brother's shirt in this one she is now re- engaged with another man and she's going to visit him but what during that visit she ends up having a a, a overnight stand with a man she meets on the train an older man from the capitalist class by this time it's revealed that she's on the left and she's working for a socialist journal she meets this man and he and they, they have sex and she later on tries to have a relationship with him and it doesn't work out and he loses interest but it has one of the best depictions of of a walk of shame and the the feeling one has after a drunken wine night stand it, it's really well done it's really great and and you can hear my comments on that in the previous episode and then the fourth one is called the genial host which is a really interesting story told in the second person it's not I've very rarely seen stories told in the second person i play you know games and of course if you play role-playing games, you're used to second-person kind of narration, but it's pretty rare in in this kind of fiction, as far as I know. Um, in fact, the, 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 the point-of-view narration in each of these stories is a little bit different. Sometimes it's first-person, sometimes it's third, and in this one it's really unique in being a, a second-person narration, but it's just about uh, kind of a, a douchey man who likes to have parties where there's a lot of kind of influential, important people, and he likes to uh, have contrasting points of view and, and articulate debate but he ends up just being presented as a very strange type of figure and the and our character again told in second person narration is is rather unimpressed with them and she ends up I think he like scolds her for drinking and then this this um, makes her basically shut the door on this guy so we have four very disjointed stories we don't even know kind of when it is in these in this woman's life um, very very um, split up. But I, again, I think that's part of the point of this novel is to, to show how our, kind of our, our lives become episodic and it's hard to kind of create an overall narrative to them. Now this somewhat gets resolved in the second half of this of this novel. Now, there's two stories left uh, that I'll talk about in this episode. and I'm not sure how long it'll take but we'll try to get through it um, fairly quickly. I, I don't think you know, I think if you listen to the first episode you know, what Mary McCarthy's trying to do here is pretty clearly laid out. But in part two, uh, well, it's not really a part two. I'm just, that's where I divided it for these episodes. But uh, it's the fifth story. It's called The Portrait of an in- of the Intellectual. In this one, Mary, Meg, Ma- Mag- Margaret takes a back seat for much of the story. She's not really there until the second half of the story. And instead, we're introduced to an intellectual. Actually, the whole name of it is a portrait of an intellectual as in a Yale man. This obviously is a pun on James Joyce, the portrait of the artist as a young man. Um, and so what we have here in this character is a guy named, uh, what's his name, Jim where is it? Jim Barnett. And he's kind of a middle class intellectual and he's, he, he, he's kind of a young academic superstar. And he gets interested in Marxism, he gets interested in uh, communism, and he kind of Gets involved in those politics, and he uses its intellectual prestige and his intellectual work to focus on talking about class, talking about the worker struggle, and all that. So, and he ends up working in a in a magazine. Now, to people from Yale, to people from his from academic background, from his class, he's seen as kind of a wasted, uh, kind of a waste of a of a great mind. Um, But over the course of the story, he he ends up meeting Meg while working at a, a a journal called The Liberal, which is a, a socialist uh, newspaper, you no know, socialist magazine. Um, and he ends up getting involved in the dispute between like, the Stalinists and Trotskyists, which, of course, really came to the forefront of communist international politics in the 30s. Right? Of course, Trotsky was um, a promoter of constant revolution. He was a cr- critic of Stalin. And and eventually, he got exiled from Russia uh, in after Stalin came to power. Um, at some point, I think, was it in the late 30s, or early 40s, Stalin actually had Trotsky assassinated in, in Latin America. But this debate between the Trotsky, it divided. It was one of the big divides in communist politics, as I understand it, in the in the 30s. I'm not, I haven't really read that much about Trotsky specifically, um, but I know a little bit about it. Um, it's one of several major divides in the communist movement. I think the other would come with the Nazi Soviet Pact, and then another would come in the, in 56 with the khrushchev speech denouncing stalin um and you know that that history of the broader communist world outside of the soviet union going from kind of idealization of stalin and the soviet union to greater disillusionment has several phases one is one is the trotsky stuff another would be the pact with the so- with the nazis in 1939 and then finally the kind of denouncing of stalin by by Khrushchev or some elements of Stalinism by Khrushchev and the invasion of Hungary in 1956. These events um, led to a growing disillusionment of the Soviet Union by by people, many, many leftists in the West. So anyways, this is not getting into that later stuff. It's it's really focusing on Trotsky. And and they're involved in this debate. So you got an American Communist Journal, an organ of the Communist Party uh, coming to terms with with Trotskyism and and what it means and how should it be addressed. And and Meg is on that side. She's on the Trotsky side of it. Now, over the course of this story, she gets closer and closer to Jim, you know, even starting basically a romantic relationship with him. But that also doesn't work. Right. So we've seen a lot of failed relationships in Margaret's life. That's certainly a strong theme of of this story and and this whole novel, actually. so, anyways, let's let's dig a little bit deeper into Portrait of the Intellectual as a Yale Man. So uh, as I said, this is the first story in this collection to really move away from Margaret. Now, well, actually the second story also moved away from Margaret uh in focus on this other guy. So you know, some stories are zeroed more in in, in Margaret's experience. Others are moved away. This one probably more than any other, I think, actually detaches from it because the second story, Rogues Gallery, although it does spend a lot of time talking about this guy, it's it's from it's from Meg's point of view. She's giving the first person narration about her experiences working for this art dealer. Um, this one, Margaret doesn't even show up till halfway through the story, and it's third person, so we really don't get her point of view at all. And it's always through this Jim Barnett's eyes that that he you know he interacts with with her. Um. So one of the most interesting things about this story certainly is Jim Barnett's profile, right? It, it's, it's called Portrait of Intellectuals, so, and it's not talking about Margaret, it's certainly talking about this Jim Barnett. So he's the focus of our story, and he's this upper class or middle class radical, right? That is the, what she's interrogating here. And it's something she's gonna interrogate more in the Oasis and i would say even in grows of academe it's something that that mary mccarthy keeps coming back to in these in these novels is the role the point of view the culture the values of this of this middle class radical right and and of course you got the obvious contradictions right someone who has benefited from the capitalist society who's gotten this uh, gotten an education who lives a relatively privileged life but yet is a member of the the socialist movement. Right? How do they get there? There are communists who get there through actual the worker struggle through being part of the working class. And, and there's people who get there intellectually through their mind, through their study. Right. And these are very different experiences at times. And and, you know, like these journals that these people write uh, in this Margaret and, and Jim work for this journal called The Liberal. I, you know, I have a hard time believing many, you know, like a steel worker or even a union steel worker might spend a lot of time reading these articles. Right. These are debates that are significant. I'm not saying they're not significant, but they're on the periphery of the actual working class struggle. Right. And I think Mary McCarthy is, is very attuned to this and very attentive of, of what it's like to be on the left, you know, probably from outside, maybe outside the, the grassroots struggle. Right, but you know, still part of the movement, working in a journal, working in the realm of ideas, working on propagandizing socialism. You know, but these these debates and these things are engaged in seem very aloof to me from the working class struggle, right? Um, Even in another story, what was it, the the man in the Brooks brothers Brooks brothers shirt? You know, she who's already a, pretty much a, admitted to be a socialist at that part in the in the novel meets this man who's a businessman, right? And she has sex with him, but she kind of fantasizes about converting him to the worker struggle or something. But it's all a game for her, right? It's not, you know, this is a man who, who does exploit the working class in various ways if you do a Marxist class analysis. You know, but for her, it, it's, it's sort of a game to maybe like convert him to the cause or something and get him to support it. And of course, it's kind of an, a, a dubious struggle. And there's a lot of attention paid in that story about how that man the man in the brooks brothers sure i forgot his name how he actually you know is kind of a he understands the these debates and things but he's kind of beyond them right and there's going to be a character in the oasis who's the same way who's kind of a more of cynical look at the world just a very practical look at the world and just existing in the world making money doing his business or whatever and you know he can talk about these debates he can talk about these things but for him it's kind of silly and it, it's marginal, especially from someone like Meg, right? And again, I, I think the the absence of actual working class people in this novel is pretty striking. And it's a little bit corrected in the Oasis, but not much. I mean, it's still intellectuals uh, on the left. Uh, certainly grows of academia too. You have a communist character who is a professor, right, who doesn't seem to do anything to actually support the struggle. So he, he's a James Joyce scholar, um, for, for Christ's sake. It's... You know, I don't see where I guess you could do a Marxist analysis of James Joyce. But, you know, I don't I see its connection to nationalism, Irish nationalism. I don't see its connection to the Irish worker struggle that much. So that's there's kind of a I don't know if you want to call it hypocrisy, because I don't think even Mary McCarthy goes that far. I think she's just kind of attended to this atten- attentive to this aloofness of the of this intellectual left leftist class. <laughs> Um, so anyways, uh, that's our focus is, is, is this upper-class radical. Uh, this is what Mary writes very early in the story, in the chapter. Quote, Most people have come to socialism by one all-too-human compulsion. They were out of work, or lonely, or sexually unsatisfied, or foreign-born, or queer in one of the hundred bitter, unredeemable ways. They resembled the original twelve apostles of the New Testament. There was no real merit in their adherence and no hope either. But Jim was like the Roman centurion or St. Paul. He came to social and freely from a happy center of things by a pure act of perception, which could only have been brought about by grace. And his conversion might have been, be interpreted as a prelude to the conversion of the world. And like all miracles, this particular one served to quicken the faith of the stragglers, the tired workers and the worldlings. Silly people who had gone a little to the, to the left and then began to wonder whether they had not, after all, made a mistake. Had only to look to Jim Barnett to feel reassured. Nobody could possibly object to socialism if they were going to be run by earnest, undogmatic Yale men. And he goes, she goes on like this. Obviously, this is cynical. I mean, I think this is a bit of a sarcastic reading on it. Uh, this is how Jim Barnett sees himself. And this is how that class of intellectuals see themselves. That they're not, yeah, they didn't come to socialism from the, from the factory floor. Like many people, they come through the struggle through unemployment, but those people who actually got to socialism through that those struggles, you know, can't really understand it and can't be the real leaders. I can be right. I, the Yale man, I can synthesize it um, and present it to people and be a leader. And that's it's it's so preposterous, actually, right Uh, towards the end of the story. He decides to quit the journal because of this Trotsky-Stalin divide and the suppression. His journal started to feel, in that context, you know, being forced to toe the party line. And he says, "I'm going to write a book." All right, let me find it. Actually, it's 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 pretty hilarious. Um, he's he's going to write a book. So, um, quote: "It would deal with the transportation industries and their relation to the Marxist idea of class struggle." He thought of the filling stations strung all over America like beads on the arterial highways. And each of the station attendants had seen this scene in the southwest, each man lonely as a lighthouse keeper of his um, Saucony or his shell castle. How were you going to organize them if you could organize workers in a factory? He thought also the chain store employees as the frontiersmen of a new kind of empire, the great empire and Pacific tea companies. The name had a ring in the age of exploration. It brought to mind the great South Sea bubble. Monopoly capitalism was deploying its forces, or rather it was obliging its historical enemy, the workers to deploy theirs, end quote. And it goes on like this. It's so actually kind of a fascinating idea. And it's something I've actually thought about. We are moving to the service economy. We are moving away from an economy based on the factory. And how we organize workers change. One reason union membership is down is because we have fewer factory workers. And you have a factory with 10,000 workers, like an auto factory. It's, it, it's difficult, it's a challenge to organize them, but it's, it's possible, right? You, you, you start a movement. How do you organize Walmarts with have might have 100 workers? Or how do you organize Starbucks with even fewer workers? Or how do you org- organize mom and pop shops or, or, or bookstores or things like that where you don't have that critical mass of workers to really create a movement? And some groups like the IWW have been trying to figure that out in, in recent years. But they're doing it, they're not doing it by writing a book. They're doing it by actually organizing workers in those places, and they're having some successes, and it's really interesting, right? Now, as interesting as this book sounds to me, or this idea of organizing these, you know, workers that are crucial to the economy, right, like gas station attendants, it's a great idea to bring them together into a movement. It's something the IWW would have been interested in. That kind of it sounds like something that they would have been they would have dug. I don't know what writing a book about it does. Really, you know, if Jim Barnett really wants to be a leader of the working class, he can organize, he can you know, organize unions. He's not doing that. He's, he wants to write about it. he wants to do a Marxist class analysis and publish it in a book that no one's going to read. Right. And I think that's what, what that's that's what gives this this whole story uh, an aura of cynicism and, and sarcasm, which I find kind of fascinating and interesting to watch, even outside of Meg's role, Mary's role in this 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 story. Another element of this is is how, and this is something that carries on in other stories here, certainly the the previous two, I think, uh, like the genial host and the man in the Brooks Brothers shirt, is how these middle class radicals and middle class communists are participants in the social refinement of their time. They're fully part of middle class life, right? And this is the question that Mary McCarthy takes up in the conclusion of this book, and it's the question she takes up certainly in the oasis as well, is is how can you be part of this oppressive bougie world and still be faithful to your communist principles? And is this a contradiction? Should we moralize about this? You know, and, and I don't think Mary McCarthy is saying these people need to necessarily go to the countryside or something. I, I think she's she thinks, you know, it's. We shouldn't moral. I mean, certainly she doesn't think we should be moralistic about it. Um, but but she's aware, it seems to me, of this, of this this oddity or this seeming contradiction. And of course, I don't know like how much of the this is Mary McCarthy's world. She's from the intellectual, right? She was married to Edmund Wilson at this time, so she's around these communists. Some of her lovers were were, were communists at various times, but they were intellectuals, right? So this is her world. You know, she's not also. It's not like she's spending time in factories. So she's not one to moralize about this herself. And I don't think she is. She's just aware of this kind of weirdness of, of like communists at dinner parties kind of thing. Uh, let me find this. I've, there's a fascinating conversation about this early in the, in the story. So anyway, just Jim Barnett's married. He's married to this woman named Nancy. And the conversation is about their, their wedding plans. Uh, quote Nancy's parents had wanted a church wedding and Jim had wanted City Hall what they had wanted was a summer wedding on the lawn with a radical clergyman from New York officiating it was the same way with their choice of friends Park Avenue and 14th Street were both ruled out the results was that the people who came to their cocktail parties at which Nancy served good hors d'oeuvres and rather poor cocktails was presentable radicals and unpresentable conservatives men in radio men in advertising lawyers with liberal ideas publishers magazine editors writers of a certain statutes of, st- of, st- of certain status who lived in the country. Every social assertion Nancy and Jim made carried their own negation with it, like Hegelian thesis. Thus it was always said by Nancy that someone was a communist but a terribly nice man, while Jim was remarking that somebody else worked for Young and R- Rubicam, but was astonishingly liberal. Every guest was a sort of qualified statement. And like Barnett's parties, in consequence, were a little dowdy, a little timid in a queer way, a little suburban. For some reason, nobody ever came to the Barnett's house without his wife, unless she was in the hospital having a baby. They came sympathetically in pairs, and once in the apartment, they would separate, as so decree. And the men would talk, standing up against the mantelpiece while the woman chattered on their sofa. The same people behaved quite differently at other parties. But here, as it was, as they were under the compulsion to act out, in a kind of ritualistic dance, the dualism of the Barnett's household, the dualism of their own nature, So this really reminds me, actually, of, of again, the genial host is this guy who just sort of wants to have conversation. He wants to have parties in which there's people engaged in these kinds of dialogues. And it's kind of all a game, right? Now, this is happening at a time, you know, this is set in the 30s at a time when unions are struggling for recognition. This novel was written in 1940. Yeah, it was no 42. It was published in 42, but it's set mostly in the 30s at a time of intense class conflict in America when workers were being shot at strikes. You know, like in, you had the, the the hunger march at Ford, you have the radical CIA organizing movements and all that, right? We're actually, you have communist sharecroppers. Read Robin Kelly's wonderful book, his first book, uh, Hammer and Ho, about radical communist. Uh, sharecroppers black sharecroppers in the south you know this is all going on in america america was on the brink of of class war essentially and and part of the new deal was an effort to kind of mediate that and mitigate that that was the world and and these people are having these dinner parties where they're inviting conservatives and inviting fashionable liberals and yeah it just seems so tepid and so banal to me and and I really think Mary McCarthy is having a little bit of a fun at, at the expense of this this class of, of basically kind of silly radicals mm-hmm. um, who who play communism and not actually do it. So um, anyways, this whole Trotsky affair, I mean, that's the that's where Meg kind of enters the story. She enters the story. As a, a bit of a foil to Jim, they end up like a romantic interest. They they try dating and things, but you know it doesn't it doesn't work out in the end. Long story short, but I, I do think the the core of this is, is kind of the cynicism about this these divides among the left as well. And this again is a theme she takes up in her next novel, The Oasis, which yeah, I have mixed feelings about. I'll talk about on the next episode though. Uh, for instance. Uh, Mary McCarthy, at one point, this is page 141 of the Library of America edition of these novels. Uh, quote, he was enjoying himself enormously. He had a true American taste for argument, argument as distinguished from conversation on the one hand and from ority on the other. The long, drawn-out, meandering debate was perhaps the only art form he understood or relished. And this was natural, since the argument is, in a sense, the only indigenous folk art. And it's not the poet, but the silver-tongued lawyer who is our real national bard. Essentially, we have sophistry here uh, being criticized um, by by Mary McCarthy. And again, I I still don't know if she's moralizing it, because at no point does she say really come out either directly or indirectly saying he should be out there actually organizing the workers. I mean, I think this is what this guy can do. And I guess it's better that he's on the left than not, but it is kind of meaningless it, it seems to be a a dead-end strategy you know but the fact that you had this really big debate I mean people died over the Trotsky-Stalin conflicts not, not 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 least Trotsky um you know in Russia and you know the growing authoritarianism in Russia and things and and from this guy's point of view it's just a debate it's just something to get engaged in and get kind of excited about right and it's something that he plays with with Mary quite a lot with I mean she she's kind of a foil for his argument and his conversations on on these issues and again it's, it's it's an academic journal right and that's what he does he argues he writes essays he and and again I just don't think it goes very far so eventually Jim leaves the liberal over this these conflicts the affair with Meg doesn't go anywhere and and then I think the final point the story makes it's pretty much on the last pages of it is how the rest of the world looked at him, how the rest of the bourgeois world looked at um, Jim and saw him basically as a, as a wasted opportunity. Right. So he. He was simply someone who who could have been a great intellectual, uh, uh, but instead wasted his life on, on dead end politics. And in a way, that's true, I, I think. Now, I don't know what he would have done in academia very differently. I mean, he could have ended up just like the character in his her third novel that we're going to look at, The Girls of Academe, who's a Communist Party member, an intellectual, a literature professor, and he just teaches classes on James Joyce that no one attends. You know, you've got like at one, at one point that guy has one student. Well, I don't know if that's any better, right? It's all about prestige, though. It's like if you get the Yale job or you get the Harvard job and then you, you're a successful intellectual doesn't really matter what you do. So in a way, at least he sticks up for his principles. Um, yeah, but he's he's an eclectic. He's a leftist eclectic. He likes ideas. He likes debate. He's not really in the trenches at all. That that's my only uh, that's my observation about this. Um, he he kind of ends up sort of a liberal too uh, in our conclusion to him. On the magazine, he always was on the side of the underdog. He treated the subordinates with consideration. He helped organize the newspaper guild chapter. He voted for Roosevelt through Destiny, though Destiny was pro wilkie This is the new journal he worked for. And when the Trotskyists were indicted for sedition in Minneapolis, he sent them a check through the Civil Liberties Union. So he becomes a liberal. He becomes a liberal, kind of leftist center liberal at the end, who who still is interested in reads Marxist theory. Um, So that's it. Um, And Margaret Sanger is... Sargent, sorry, not uh, Sanger. Uh, Mar- Margaret Sargent is presented as just another one of these uh, middle-class folks who who sees his career as a as a wasted um, as a wasted life. Calls it the tyrus class. Anyways, that's the story. The portrait of the intellectual as a Yale man. It's a nice one, I, I think. Um, you know, each of these stories stands on their own as a, as an interesting case study. Now, the final one, uh, Ghostly Father, I Confess. That's what concludes the novel. And it is a true conclusion. It's a, it's a story that's presented as a confessional. So again, we have... it's I believe it's in third person as well, the narration. So she sticks with that. But now we're focusing directly on Maggie. And since most of it, the vast majority of the story, is Maggie's confessional, it, it's mostly from her point of view. So we kind of return to her point of view. Um, and it's in this story we really see... Margaret Mary, Mary mccarthy I mean Mary mccarthy's Catholicism um, coming off clearest in this story I mean confessional is certainly a theme of the novel but it really only I mean I guess in the whole the whole novel itself was kind of a, a confessional but from different points of view This is the actual confessional um, Which is she's actually talking to um, A psychiatrist about her life and her problems and the different tensions in her life And I, I think there's two I think there's two tensions that are articulated in this third, sixth story, sixth story, um, sixth story of, the com- uh, of the company she keeps called Ghostly Father, I Confess. The title is religious, although the confession she's actually giving is to a, a psychiatrist. But um, the one tension here is kind of the criticism of being part of middle class life and the impossibility to avoid that, that culture. For instance, she says, or just Dr. James' analysis in response to her, you reproach yourself unnecessarily. You have got everything upside down, her husband had told her. And from their point of view, they were quite right. Why shouldn't she finish her dinner, love her husband, have a baby, stay alive? What was the crime? What was the class crime, to be sure? Yet it was not for having money that she hated herself, but, be honest, she murmured, for having some but not enough. If she could be very rich, it was the ugly cartoon of middle-class life she detested. And that's really interesting. It's like she's in the middle class. But she can't fully enjoy it because she's not quite rich enough, right? But that also betrays her kind of socialist um, values in a way. Uh, later on, the author, the narrator writes, if, only, if one could only be sure that one did not belong to it, that one was finer, nobler, more aristocratic, the truth was she hated it shakily from above, not solidly from below. And her proletarian sympathies constituted a sort of snub that, the, that she administered to the middle class. So she's of a class that she sort of hates, but her dream at some level is to be above it, to criticize it from above, all right, to, to be really rich. And and maybe this helps explain her affair with the guy with the Brooks Brothers shirt, because uh, he was more upper class. He would have been a path for her into that upper class. She doesn't, she never considers really critiquing it from below, which I'm not even sure it's possible, right? Can you, class is so much cultural, right? It's, it's, it is a, a, a relationship power and of station And she's worked jobs. I mean, she's been in that position where she's been essentially an exploited worker, like in the second story, Rogue's Gallery. But she never really identifies with that class, and she always kind of remains part of that middle-class life. Um, uh, The narrator writes at one point, scratch a socialist and you find a snob. Uh, Certainly, this is referring to those middle-class socialists. I don't think you would say like a union socialist, a union communist in the CIO or something was a snob. Um, she's really, again, she, her life is this, this world, this upper-class uh, leftism, and, and that's really focused on debate and discussion and, and, and what we would now call culture wars. Right. So this brings to the second tension, which is, which is kind of addressed at wrong, the same point in the story, and that is why embrace socialism at all, right? Is it essentially just a, a cultural revolt? right and and so it kind of you got the the core one though is is her disgust at middle-class life which she is a part of and and wants to be away from but her way to get out of it is to look from above and then this kind of contextualizes her socialism as just an angry cultural revolt against this class that she doesn't really want to be a part of her romantic struggles which are very clear in this novel of course and that's a big part of the story is her her flipping between different men and her struggles to find uh, romantic happiness is is kind of taken a second is second tier it's like a, it's a function of, of that it seems let me find the place where she, uh, mary talks about mary mccarthy talks about this she writes the romantic life had been too hard on her in morals as in politics anarchy is not for the weak The small state, rackled by internal dissension, invites the foreign conqueror. Prescription, martial law, the billeting of the root troops, the tax collector, the unjust judge, anything, anything at all is sweeter than responsibility. The dictator is also the scapegoat in assuming absolute authority. He assumes absolute guilt, and the oppressed masses groaning under the yoke know themselves to be innocent as lambs while they pray hypocritically for deliverance. Frederick imagined that she had married him for security. By the way, she's married now to this guy Frederick. but what he did not understand was that security from the telephone company or the grocer was as nothing compared to the other security he gave her the security from being perpetually in the wrong and that she would have eaten bread and water if necessary in order to be kept in jail. Wow I mean what a, a awesome and, and succinct and, and brilliant summary of of like the bourgeois woman who, who maybe has some desire at liberty but you know cultural social liberty and personal relationships but can't really get that far, and and sort of basically settles for security, not even economic security, right? The security of having a stability in 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 a culture in transition, right? That's a big theme here. Is the old, I mean, the new woman, right? The the the, the modern girl, the, these motifs in modern America, you know, the liberated woman, the career woman, the professional woman, right? Are 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 real. And they're attractive. They were attractive to many people, and many people were able to embrace that fully. Many other people, though, liked that, but, but couldn't escape like the cultural burden of, of marriage and family and all those expectations, right? The question asked earlier, I think it's by the, the, the doctor, is like, why not get married? Why not just accept these things if that's really what you desire, if that's what you want? There's nothing, no shame in that. But for... Meg, there is a bit of a shame in that, but she can't escape that that need to be part of it. So it's a disconnect between her intellectual ideals and the reality of the culture she lives in. And this, I think, parallels very much her criticism of of intellectual leftism, where it's these are real critiques. I mean, they're not wrong to critique capitalism. They're they're just doing it from this inauthentic point of view. And none of them want to give up their cocktail parties. None of them want to give up their their penchant for discussion and actually fight class struggle. right? And it's, it's very much like her decision to eventually marry. And a lot of this confessional is coming to terms with these various tensions and just accepting you know, what makes her comfortable rather than, than what she thinks is expected or what her mind tells her. It's, it's not quite the mind heart dilemma, but it's, it is kind of the intellectual versus the cultural um, conflict in, in a society in flux. And I I think her conclusion here at the end of this story and the end of this novel, I think it's quite wise. Um, Quote, if you cannot stop doing evil, you must try to forget about God. If your eyes are bigger than your stomach, by all means, put one of them out. Learn to measure your capacities. Never undertake more than you can do. Then no one will know that you are a failure. You will not even know it yourself. If you cannot love, stop attempting it. For in each attempt, you'll only reveal your poverty. And every bed you've ever slept in will commemorate a battle lost. The betrayer is always a debtor at best. He can only work on the remorse in remorse is deficit of love, until remorse itself becomes love's humble, shamefaced proxy. The two she had cared for most, or was it that they had cared most for her, had she believed, understood all this during those last hours when the packed trunks stood about the room, and the last pound of butter got soft in the defrosting ice. It seemed a pity to waste it, but what what would you what, what were you gonna do with it? They had consoled her and petted her and promised that she would be happy and she would soon forget them just as they had been leaving her instead of the other way around. Uh, and that's the cost. That's the cost of her inability to accept what she needs, what she wants, and, and, and what this overpowering culture around her expects of her. Right. And the, the cost is this, this, you know, this romantic anarchy, as, as it's described. Um really a lot of fun here. Uh, there's there's like some Freudian things where they go into a little bit of her father. And you know, we, we finally get the analysis of 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 Meg at the end by the Doctor. And it comes right at the end of the novel where finally we get uh, like an objective observer giving his point of view on it. Because so much of this has been through Meg's experiences and her point of view and no narrator I think ever dug deep into the heart of the problem until this final chapter and the, the solution he essentially gives is to embrace her her decision to to marry as as a legitimate authentic not decision and to accept it for what it is and and again I, I think the conclusions drawn here are, are quite quite wise um, at least at least for this case because this is this is a character in political, in, in, in class and, and relationship anarchy, right? And she's never been content where, where she is. And this has led to this, this kind of wandering about, right? As someone who has wandered about quite a lot myself, I, I sympathize a lot with this conclusion. I don't know if I can ever be comfortable. In, in, I don't know if I can take this lesson myself, because you know, I'm already feeling the pull of a new place after just being in, in China for two years. But, but I understand you know, where, what, what she's trying to do, I think. Um, so anyway, this is a really, really great novel. And it's a really great introduction to Mary McCarthy. I, I was a bit hesitant. I didn't really know anything about her. She's one of these writers that has kind of experienced a bit of revival, in part because of these anthologies by um, Library of America. But I have never heard of her. And I, I talked to some of my colleagues, literature teachers, and they never heard of her. So she's not the most well-known person. And and yeah, I found the you know I just it's like a jewel that I've just that I've discovered here, and I'm really really excited to talk about some of her other novels. I don't feel quite as highly about The Oasis simply because I, I kind of had troubles getting into it. But you know, when I kind of went back at it again and started taking notes on it, I, I found more to love in in The Oasis. I I think there's a lot of characters crammed into a short novel, and it seems a bit preposterous at times, but. But uh, yeah, I think I get what you're trying to say there, too. And it carries on some of the themes we've already been talking about in this particular work. So, um, yeah, a really brilliant series of stories playing with the flexibility of identity and social roles within an increasingly liquid world. It's really about the impossibility of being free in the midst of the gaze of others. And that the way we do that is with, the way we address that is with some degree of authenticity and acceptance of where we are and not always trying to, to be something we essentially aren't. Um, a lot of, um, but I, I think the problem's still there. I, I don't think Mary's saying this problem's going away anytime soon. I, I think there, there is, um, I mean, within the context of feminism, in the context of the rise of women, uh, women's empowerment, next to still uh, in many ways a very conventional culture, especially in bourgeois circles. Um, this is not a problem that's going to go away. But she she analyzes it so well here. Um, thematically, a lot of interesting things to talk about. Um, Marriage certainly adultery and faithfulness runs throughout this. She's uh, Unfaithful to one husband. She's unfaithful to a fiance. She's She tries several failed relationships and her final marriage. She's thinking about (coughs) leaving Uh, That's why the final chapter exists and why she's going to this um, Therapist So a lot here about about adultery uh, especially uh, very vi- vivid and memorable depictions of it, especially in the man from the Brooks Brothers, with the in the Brooks Brothers' shirts. Uh, going back to Rogue's Gallery, we have a nice critique of the shallowness of capitalism as well as the shallowness of some of the intellectual left. Uh, both are condemned in various ways, um, but they're both kind of fake for the same reason. Um, I, I kind of like the Rogue's Gallery a little bit more because it, you know, it, you get this almost preposterous figure, but it seems very much, especially in the post two uh, thousand eight economic crisis, where you saw just how much of the economy was propped up. It was fake, was invented, was just nonsense, right? That was really um, interesting uh, commentary, and it really is true true to now. I mean, maybe in the Great Depression people were thinking that way, but after two thousand eight, it's hard not to see. You know, when someone has a billion billions of dollars from you know, managing hedge funds or something, that this is not earned money. This is a facade, and it's easily broken down. Now, it's told in the micro case in Rogue's Gallery, but I think it can be extended. <clears throat> Certainly, you have the same criticism of the intellectual left of being kind of a playing at being a leftist, playing culture wars, playing, or not even culture wars necessarily, but, but culture games, right? The, the, the dinner parties, the conversations, the discussions, at a time when set at a time when people were dying uh, in strike actions and things it's it does kind of make uh, some of those intellectual leftists look kind of out of touch you have a lot here on middle class life this is the big thing that that make can't escape at any point in the novel really is the the structures the symbolism the the, the expectations the rituals of middle class life uh, and she eventually sort of accepts it. She, she gets married to a, a well-off middle-class guy and lives the middle-class life, right? And that's, that's kind of the end of the story. It, we don't see really what happens with her after that, but it's, it seems that she's going to have to make some peace with, with where she is in life or divorce him, have another affair, divorce him, and, and move on and see where that takes her. Um, interesting stuff on intellectual life beyond just the leftism, especially the way the Yale people looked at Jim Barnes. Um, you know, and, and and critiqued him and the expectations of that of that kind of bougie, uh, you know, intellectual protege who graduates with their PhD in some prestigious field and, and it's, great things are expected of them. That's all, you know, rather interestingly presented in that story. Uh, the confessional, uh, of course, if you read Michel Foucault, you know, he thinks the confessional had an interesting role, a cathartic role. In, in in articulating sexual differences and things. I don't know if, if McCarthy's going that way. I think she's really building this off of her experience as a Catholic. Um, but here it's presented through the psychiatrist and we just have to look at how many people go to therapists these days and how, how much big business it is to know that, that there's something meaningful in the confessional. People seem to need it. Um, you know, People like to tell their people their secrets and maybe we, we need, maybe we lose something when we don't have that through, through religion. Um, but we have it through therapists now, right? We just replace it. I don't know there's still people, who religious people, who go to the confessional. But you know, I don't think it's quite the thing it was in the Middle Ages or something. Uh, and then tied to that is this is a sexual confessional in a way. Um, a big part of the sexual revolution, as I understand it, was people just being honest about who they have sex with and how often and and how much how long much they're faithful. That's what the Kinsey reports did. Is they just said, forget all what you think about sexuality. Let's actually interview people and find out exactly what they do objectively. And you found out people's sexual lives were much more diverse than than monogamous sex within marriage. And you have uh, Sex in the Single Girl by uh, Gurley. What's it? Helen Gurley some Flynn. Something like some name like that. I remember the name of the book, um, uh, Sex in the Single World. That's one of the big, the first blockbuster kind of bestseller sexual confessionals, right? This, this has those elements. You know, Mary McCarthy does draw a lot of these stories from life. I don't know if she had an affair on a train uh, with, a, with a rich man. You know, it's possible. Um, she, she seemed to have had quite the interesting romantic life. But you know, as a fiction novel, we have a, you know, a lot of this is about sex, and a lot of it's an honest depiction of, of adultery. And I, I think that's kind of a radical, liberating thing about this, this novel, and, and it's something I, I rather like about it. It gives, it. it gives it some nice edge, I think. And it, it makes it almost a precursor to some of the things we see later in the sexual revolution, uh, even though this is of an earlier epoch. All right, that's going to do it for The Company She Keeps. Uh, In the next episode, I will do a one-episode analysis of The Oasis. Uh, It's only an 80-page little novel. Um, It deals with a bunch of intellectuals who set up a utopian community, uh, essentially called Utopia, up in New England, and hijinks and hilarity ensues. Um, It's... it's gotta be a i mean it's so absurd it's gotta be just a metaphor for america or a metaphor for the left or something it's it's preposterous everything that happens here is so unbelievable but it's fun and and yeah i I look forward to talking about that with you in the next episode so as always thanks for listening and thanks for sharing your time with me if you have read the company she keeps uh, if you're interested in reading it leave your thoughts and comments below. If you've read other novels that, that, that kind of deal with similar themes, let me know what they are, um, especially if they're by 20th century American women. I would like to maybe do a comparison of those. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll see you next time, with, and I'll give you my thoughts on The Oasis. Uh, until then, uh, keep reading, and um, yeah, I'll see you next time. Look over the oceans, look over the lands, look over the leaders with the blood on their hands. And open your eyes and see what they do When they knock over their friend They're knocking for you With their knock on the door Knock on the door Here they come to take one more With their knock on the door Knock on the door Here they come